0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Abnormal Psychologist Podcast, hosted by Dr. Colby Taylor, a licensed psychologist in the state of Tennessee. And I'm also a college professor, an assistant professor of behavioral sciences. So I'm super professional um, at Christian Brothers University. I promise I'm not that professional. Uh, but I am starting back to the fall semester, starting classes again um, in a little over a week. So I'm a little bit nervous. Uh, this is might come as a shock to some people or some listeners, but college professors get just as nervous on the first day of school as their students. Um, if not more so, and especially this semester now that we're like going to be back fully face to face. Um, so I'll share some of my experiences in the classroom with you as we go along in future episodes. Uh, more exciting news is we have a podcast studio on campus now. Uh, so I know I've had some requests for better sound quality, And this might give the opportunity to add more professionalism and better sound quality to the podcast. Um, I've also had some requests for a theme song. Um, So if anybody's musically inclined and would like to make a theme song, that would be awesome. Um, I'd be uh, super grateful to you, um, especially if it's good, um, if it's really good. So maybe we'll have a theme song, but we'll definitely have, um, I'll, I'll try to record the next episode in the podcast studio on campus and we'll see if we can tell a difference. Um, also we have the artwork for this podcast, right? So you probably see the abnormal psychologist logo that has the brain on it. Um, and that was the brain child of one of my students, one of my former students. Um, they, they graciously designed that logo for me and gave it to me. So, um, always down for sort of crowdsourcing, uh, uh, music logos, what have you. Um, anyways, I thought that I would dedicate this episode to sort of two topics, um, the first topic being mental health and the Olympics. So I'm recording this um, on Friday, August 6th. The Olympics end on the 8th. The closing ceremonies on the 8th. Um, and mental health has been a huge topic in this Olympic game. So I thought we'd talk about that a little bit. And then I thought we would, um, towards the second half of the episode, talk about uh, V codes, which are in the back of the DSM, uh, what exactly V codes are, why I think they're important, why I think they're underutilized. Uh, so we'll get to that towards the end of the episode. Um, and then, of course, we'll get to the mailbag. All right. So getting started with the the, the Olympics, I don't know if people have been watching the Olympics. Uh, it's kind of weird with the time difference. I think it's like an 11-hour difference between uh, central time zone in the United States and Japan. Uh, but of course, big news, unless you've been living under a rock, right? Simone Biles removed herself from a lot of the individual competitions as well as the team competition. She came back and she got bronze, I think, on the balance beam. Um, but this put to the forefront uh, sort of the importance of mental health uh, in athletic competition. Uh, Michael Phelps gave an interview after uh, Simone Biles uh, withdrew from the the team competition. And he talked about his own bouts of depression and suicidality. Uh, and he also mentioned that we often neglect Uh, when the lights go down on competition. So post-competition, how a lot of athletes build up to this moment, this Olympic Games, right? They train for years or even decades for an Olympic, not decades, but maybe for a decade for Olympic Games. And then uh, it's sort of anticlimactic. There's there's this letdown. Um, And a lot of uh, athletes don't get the mental health resources or other resources they need after the competition, right? There's all these resources leading up to competition and during competition and then It's just kind of over. Unfortunately, we've had a lot of former Olympians commit suicide. So some of the big names, some medalists, uh, Jarrett Peterson, Kelly Catlin, Stephen Shearer, um, all committed suicide. Uh, So this this is a big problem. And I'm sort of glad that it's come to the forefront in this Tokyo Olympic Games. I'm predicting that this is going to lead to a greater demand for sports psychologists, and some of you might be interested in sports psychology. I know a lot of my students are. Uh, and you might wonder, what exactly is sports psychology? You know, how does it differ from you know, clinical psychology or other subfields of psychology or specialties in psychology? Uh, so in 2003, the APA, the American Psychological Association, uh, created a sports psychology proficiency. And re- whenever you create a proficiency... You create uniform standards for what it means to be proficient in that area, which in turn protects the public. So some of the uniform standards, and this is coming straight from the APA for uh, sports psychology, are knowledge and theory and research in social, historical, cultural, and developmental foundations of sports psychology Principles and Practices of Applied Sport Psychology, and I say sports psychology, but usually you see it listed as sport psychology as a singular, or at least the APA does. Uh, so I, I get in the habit of saying sports psychology. Please excuse me. It's really sport psychology. Um, but anyways, uh, principles and practices of applied sport psychology, including issues and techniques of sport specific psychological assessment and mental skills training for performance enhancement and satisfaction with participation. A clinical and counseling issues with athletes, which I think is a big reason why a lot of people get involved in sports psychology, um, organizational and systemic aspects of sport consulting, understanding of the developmental and social issues related to sport participation, and knowledge of the bio-behavioral basis of sport and exercise. So that's pretty wide-ranging. And, you know, I've mentioned the APA's division set up before, how there's either 54 or 56 divisions of the APA. Um, the APA website says there's 54, but then you scroll down to list the divisions and it shows 56 divisions. So I'm very interested if uh, a listener can clarify that for me. I've tweeted at the APA before about that. And I think they probably blocked my Twitter account. Uh, but anyways, division 47 of the APA is the society for sport exercise and performance psychology. Uh, So check that out. If you're interested in sports psychology training wise, um, I think it's really important to get your doctoral degree. So when the APA came out with this 2003 sports psychology proficiency, um, they said it's a proficiency acquired after a doctoral degree. And um, you want it to be a doctoral degree in an area where you can be licensed as a psychologist. Uh, So that would usually be a clinically focused field. Um, And it specifically says that the proficiency does not include those who have earned a doctoral degree in sports psychology, but are not licensed psychologists. So one of the pitfalls you might make if you're an undergrad that's interested in sports psychology is you might apply to a doctorate program in sports psychology. Um, and you might think, you know, once you complete that, you can call yourself a, a sports psychologist. Uh, but if it's not, um, Uh, on the path to licensure if it's not clinically focused, the APA doesn't really recognize that as part of their sports psychology proficiency. So do some research into these doctoral programs if you're looking to apply. Uh, Another thing is there's a lot of master's programs. Uh, University of Texas offers one in sports psychology. And again, according to this sports psychology proficiency, um, the APA is not really going to recognize it Some other programs that are out there are West Virginia University, Purdue University, and University of North Texas. Um, Anyways, this is not my area of expertise, um, but there are some other terms that people who work with athletes might go by that aren't sports psychologists. Um, You could call yourself a performance coach, a mindfulness expert, or a mental skills coach. And some of these experts are great. Um, Some of them work with professional sports teams uh, and are very highly regarded and highly effective. Um, My 10th grade English teacher, uh, Greg Graber, has gone on to become a mindfulness coach. And he's worked with the Memphis Grizzlies, uh, the LSU basketball team, George Washington basketball team, uh, Marquette basketball team, uh, among a bunch of other sports teams. Uh, He even helped me prepare for Jeopardy. Uh, He's also an author now. He wrote a book called Slow Your Roll, Mindfulness for Fast Times. So just because you don't have that APA 2003 sports psychology proficiency um, doesn't mean that you can't work with athletes, and it also doesn't mean that you're not effective. Uh, But I do think that we're starting to get towards a a more standardized uh, terminology um, when we're talking about what sports psychology is. Uh, I also think that this is sort of like forensic psychology in a way, that a lot of folks uh, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, you would go on to get your your doctoral degree in um, a clinically focused psychology program, right? So counseling psychology or clinical psychology. You get licensed and then you go on to maybe take some continuing education courses or something like that and become a... Um, a sports psychologist or a forensic psychologist. You wouldn't necessarily start out in grad school in a specialized uh, sports psychology or forensic psychology program. Uh, But now that these fields have become more popular, you're seeing uh, graduate programs open up specifically targeted towards sports psychology or towards forensic psychology so that you can go in after being an undergrad and enroll in a sports psychology-focused doctoral program or Uh, forensic psychology-focused doctoral program. Uh, I'm not really going to debate the merits of that. You know, you can still go the back doorway of going ahead, getting your uh, general PhD in clinical psychology, and then specializing in something down the road to where you're a generalist and then you're more specific. I think there's a lot of merits in that. Uh, But don't be surprised if you see more and more programs popping up um, that specifically target um, fields like forensic psychology or sports psychology. Um, it's becoming more common than it was like 20 years ago. Uh, there's also like software that's out there that's supposed to help with mental training. Um, I don't know that I've mentioned this on a previous podcast, but I'm a huge University of Memphis sports fan uh, with the Memphis Tigers, right? We have a basketball team and football team and a lot of other sports, but I'm a big basketball and football fan. Um, our football season's like a month away I'm really looking forward to that. I try to go to as many games as I can. Uh, But our basketball team, uh, and this was uh, when I was an undergrad, so like 14 years ago, long time ago, uh, they started using IntelliGym. And so IntelliGym is like a video game-based brain training program. And supposedly it taught athletes to be able to think quickly on their feet. Um, uh, there was visual spatial stuff. There was decision-making stuff. There was stuff, you know, thinking in the heat of the moment, that sort of thing. I think it had originally been piloted on, um, no pun intended, the Israeli Air Force. Uh, but now IntelliGym, um I think, has, has branched out and become an even bigger thing. I know a lot of professional um, sports teams uh, use some sort of mental training or cognitive training um, computer program, even though the effectiveness of this is still uh, not super, super robust uh, in, in research. Um, anyways, different topic. Uh, back to the Olympics. Um, you can become an Olympic psychologist. So if you're really good at sports psychology, um, uh, Team USA could hire you as an Olympic psychologist. And uh, they're sort of the unsung heroes of a lot of Olympic games, both winter and summer Olympics. And I'm wondering if, uh, I haven't been able to find this anywhere, if Olympic psychologists were allowed to attend the Tokyo Olympics, Uh, right? Attendance was so limited with the COVID-19 pandemic. Usually Olympic psychologists are allowed in the Olympic village with athletes. And I really don't think that happened with this Tokyo Games, uh, which might have led to more mental health crises. Um, There's also probably a profound psychological impact of not having your family on hand when you compete. Um, also the impact of not having spectators really with this Tokyo Olympic game. So all sorts of sort of fascinating uh, psychological things that have gone into this Tokyo Olympics. And hopefully uh, research will sort of be able to parse apart maybe what impact that had on the games. There has been psychological research related to the Olympics before. Um, so after the Barcelona Olympics, Medvik, Madley, and Gilovic. Uh, the Barcelona Olympics, I believe, was 1992. I'm trying to consult my uh, Olympic history trivia knowledge. Uh, but anyways, this, this research study uh, found that bronze medalists are happier than silver medalists. And the reason they think this is is what we call counterfactual thinking. So in psychology, counterfactual thinking is thinking about what might have been, right? So if you're a silver medalist, you're thinking about what might have been uh, that you could have won the gold medal. Whereas bronze medalists are thinking about what might have been, that they couldn't have made the medal stand. They were pretty close to not making the medal stand at all, right? Um, So silver medalists want the gold, bronze medalists are happy to be on the podium. Um, There has been some uh, replication of this research. So back in 2012, after the London Olympics, uh, a group of researchers reviewed video footage of Olympic athletes on the podium. Uh, And they rated happiness of facial expressions. And they also found that uh, bronze medalists tend to be happier than uh, silver medalists. Uh, But they also found that margin of victory plays a factor, right? If you're a distant second, uh, you get silver medal and you're way behind the person who won gold. You might not engage in that counterfactual thinking because you're like, there's no way I could have... Uh, competed with that person. Whereas if you're like a tenth of a second away from beating that person, you know, it was neck and neck, then you might have that more what might have been thinking going on, Uh, which kind of reminds me of like this old country song. It's not that old, probably 20 years ago. I don't know. Uh, It was by Little Texas. Uh, It was called What Might Have Been. I'm not going to sing for you, but the lyrics are, I try not to think about what might have been because that was then and we have taken different roads. We can't go back again. There's no use giving in and there's no way to know what might've been. And that sounds sort of like counterfactual thinking to me. Sort of when I was thinking about counterfactual thinking, that song came to mind. Um, Anyway, Simone Biles, in my opinion, very heroic. Uh, You also psychologically related, might've read a news article or something like that, that she's diagnosed with ADHD, so attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Um, And based on like public medical records of Olympic athletes, which is kind of weird to me, uh, she's been prescribed methylphenidate, which is a psychostimulant medication, Ritalin is methyl- methylphenidate, um, and that methylphenidate is supposedly banned in the Tokyo Olympics. I'm not sure how true that is. Uh, I've tried to do some fact checking on that. And it's not really clear whether methylphenidate was in fact banned at the Co- Tokyo Olympics, added to the banned substance list. Um, usually, when you think about performance enhancing drugs, we're thinking about like human growth hormone or steroids, you know, that sort of thing. It enhances physical performance, not like nootropics, nootropics, N-O-O-T-R-O-P-I-C is like a term for a, a drug or substance that might give you a cognitive boost. Um, we're usually not thinking about cognitive boosts. We're usually thinking about physical boosts. We're thinking about athletic competition. Um, so not sure that that uh, is true on Simone Biles and the methylphenidate uh, ban at the po- Tokyo Olympics. Um, so that's the first part. I wanted to talk about mental health in the Olympics and it filled up like 15 minutes a time um, with the second half of the episode, uh, I wanted to talk about V codes in the DSM-5. So V codes, I guess, are more technically called other conditions that may be a focus of clinical attention. And this is a chapter towards the back of the DSM-5. Uh, it's actually starts on page 715. Um, and we call them V codes because, uh, they're alpha, alpha numeric codes, um, Uh, really numeric codes, the alpha part comes with the letter V, and you usually see them written out like V61.20, stands for parent-child relational problems. And there are a way that we can code for things that might influence mental health that aren't technically mental health diagnoses. So this kind of goes back to the biopsychosocial model, right? We need to give more credence to social factors, right? Social factors are very important uh, to mental health and to mental functioning. So we need a place to code for it to inform other practitioners and other people um, that might have a vested interest in sort of the mental and physical health of the client that, you know, these are important things that you maybe should know about. Um, uh, so the, they're kind of grouped um, according to broad issues. Uh, so the first uh, broad sort of category is relational problems. So you might have problems related to family upbringing, which include parent-child relational problems. Uh, So maybe there's um, some antipathy uh, in the parent-child relationship. Maybe there's some estrangement between parent and child, or maybe there's a sibling relation problem, Uh, or maybe um, the child is being raised apart from the parent upbringing away from parents is a V code V point or V 61.8. Or one that I see pretty commonly is child affected by parental relationship distress. So, This is where there's parental relationship discord, so parents fight a lot, um, there's a lot of conflict, and that can rub off on the child, right? It's not a mental health diagnosis of the child, uh, but it's something that you should be aware of if you're a mental health practitioner, right? This would be helpful in treatment conceptualization. Um, There are also problems related to uh, like having a partner, right? There's relationship distress you might have with a, a spouse or intimate partner, Um, there's disruption of family by separation of divorce, which is another big one that I often see with the child affected by parental relationship distress, one that I just talked about. Um, uh, bereavement, maybe somebody, uh, uh, died that was close to, uh, to the client. Um, there's also child maltreatment and neglect problems. And unfortunately I've had to code for this quite a few times, like child physical abuse, uh, child sexual abuse, child neglect, child psychological abuse. Uh, these all seem to be really important things that don't really need to pathologize the child, but that you should be aware of if you're a counselor or a psychologist. Um, there's adult maltreatment and neglect problems. Um, so like spousal physical violence, uh, spousal sexual violence, spousal neglect, or spousal psychological um, abuse. Those should all be coded somewhere. Um, uh, there's abuse by a non-spouse or non-partner. Um, that can be coded. So somebody that's not your significant other that, 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 that might abuse you. Um, so relational problems is that first sort of big area uh, in the, the V codes or other conditions that may be the focus of clinical attention. Um, the next big area is education and occupation problems. Um, so if you're uh, having some problem educationally, uh, maybe you have literacy that's not related to a specific learning disorder. Um, or maybe you've lacked sort of the opportunity to attend formal school because of you know, other issues um, that could be coded here. Occupational problems. Uh, if you're uh, military and you're currently deployed, that could be um, coded here or another problem related to employment. So maybe you have extreme job dissatisfaction. Um, or you've experienced sexual harassment on the job. Obviously, something's not wrong with you. We don't need to pathologize you, uh, but it might be important for uh, other mental health practitioners to know that. Um, So educational and occupational problems is the next big group. And then the group after that is housing and economic problems. Uh, So homelessness, inadequate housing, uh, discord with a neighbor or landlord could all be uh, coded here. Um, Economic problems like extreme poverty, Low income, which aren't quantified, it doesn't give sort of an income, um, uh, uh, minimum income to be coded here. It sort of leaves that to the discretion of the provider. Um, uh, Insufficient social insurance or welfare support. Um, These are all really important things to know. Um, And then there's sort of an other problems related to social environment uh, category uh, where you might have a problem with living alone. There might be acculturation difficulties, and we had a culture episode um, back at the end of the first season. Um, You might be experiencing discrimination or persecution. It's not necessarily on the job because that could be coded with the work problems. Uh, Those could be coded here. Um, You could have problems related to crime. So you could either be a victim of crime. We have a code for that, uh, V62.89, or you could have been convicted of a crime, which is V62.5. Um, you might have just been released from prison. Uh that could be V62.5. Uh so all different sorts of codes that we can use for problems related to crime or interaction with the legal system. Um there's another health service encounters for counseling and medical advice section. Um we can code this for like sex counseling. It would not necessarily be a paraphilia, which would be diagnostic. Um, or another type of counseling or consultation. So maybe like premarital advice counseling, dietary counseling, that sort of thing. Um, that can be coded. And then the next big section is problems related to other psychosocial, personal, and environmental circumstances. So if you're having a religious or spiritual problem, you're, you know, you're questioning your spirituality or religion. That can be quoted here. Uh, Problems related to unwanted pregnancy are coded here. This is a big category. Uh, Victim of uh, terrorism or torture can be coded here. Uh, uh, Exposure to disaster, war, and other hostilities. It's not necessarily PTSD. Uh, Maybe you haven't developed any of the criteria for PTSD, but this is something that maybe should be on a clinician's radar. Um, That could be coded as V62.22. And I'm using V-code here. It actually could also be called Z-code. So the reason we call them V-codes is because in the ICD-9, so the International Classifications of Diseases, um, these numerical or alphanumerical codes that I'm reading off are called V codes. Uh, But actually, they changed to Z codes in the ICD-10. I think a lot of clinicians still call them V codes, um, that that language is going to stick. But technically, with the ICD-10, they're Z codes. I'm not sure why they changed from V codes to Z codes. so anyways, those are sort of the, the, the big ones. There's also a non-adherence to medical treatment towards the end. So um, if uh, you're uh, medication non-compliant um, or if you're overweight or obese, um, that can be coded as a V or Z code. Um, uh, malingering, so faking bad that doesn't necessarily fit with um, like a somatic symptom disorder or something like that. Um, or factitious disorder, that can be coded here. Uh, borderline intellectual functioning that doesn't meet for um, intellectual disability, that can be coded here. And it's interesting, now those are called R code. That, that one is called an R code, that last one, borderline inter- intellectual functioning, in the ICD-10. So that one's actually not a Z code, it's an R code. Um, but in the 9, the ICD-9, and in the DSM-5, it's a V code, V62.89. So... Uh, anyways, I think V codes are underutilized by clinicians uh, because I, I again I'm a big biopsychosocial model person. I think we oftentimes ignore the social aspects of things, uh, and these are very important to your client's functioning. Um, and so, the more multidimensional uh, we can make a client look to another practitioner instead of just giving a diagnostic code for you know uh, generalized anxiety disorder or something, I think throwing in these other things maybe about Uh, um, educational stressors or um, food security stressors or housing security stressors. I think that those all add really important context uh, to other clinicians. And I think that V codes are underutilized. Um, Sadly, I think that um, when I ask a lot of uh, fellow practitioners about V codes, they look at me like, what what is a V code? Because they don't get that deep into the DSM-5. Luckily, when I was in grad school, one of my graduate professors was really big on V codes. And so I tried to add them to my reports uh, whenever possible. Because again, I think that they give uh, um, more rich context on the client um, and make the client seem less two-dimensional to somebody that might just be reviewing a report and trying to uh, figure out how this client's functioning or what they look like. Um, Anyways, uh, these V codes lead me into, and this is turning into a long episode, we're getting close to the 30-minute mark, um, a mailbag request that we have. Uh, and so here's the mailbag request. It says, hi, I have a request. Can you do an episode on divorce? I feel like everyone I know has divorced parents. So I'm really curious about the stats on that. Um, I've also seen contradicting stats. For example, one study will say that cohabitation heightens the risk from div- divorce and then another will say it lowers it. By the way, I absolutely love your podcast and I listen to it while driving all across the United States. That's the end of the mailbag request. And uh, divorce, again, can be something that's coded as a V-code, uh, and it's something that I think definitely deserves its own episode. So I'm going to do that in a future episode. We'll talk about divorce. We'll talk about um, it being a risk factor for certain things and some common uh, myths and misunderstandings surrounding divorce. Um, if you have a mailbag request for an episode or any comments or criticisms, um, you can email me at c T A Y L O 41 at cb.edu. Put the subject line mailbag and I'll try to get back in touch with you as soon as possible. Again, uh, you know, the semester, the new semester, the fall semester is starting uh, a little over a week. So if I'm a little delayed in getting back to you, um, I apologize in advance. Uh, But keep episode requests coming. And uh, until the next episode, take care and stay well.